So I really wrestled this week with, with what song I should do. There was one I wanted to do, but actually I've preached or I've told the story of this song before. And so I thought, and I, I looked it up, it was six years ago when I told the story of the song. And I thought, can I do it again? Is that fair? Is that okay? And then I was sitting at my house this week, and my family was watching Parent Trap for like the thousandth time. And my kids were still laughing at it, and I was still bored out of my mind. And I decided if my kids can get something out of Parent Trap time and time again, then I can tell the story again, and we can get something out of it. So anyway, that's kind of the intro to my, my sermon. The song that I want to talk about this morning is the song, It Is Well. Um, the words that we just sang, some of them, uh, and then I'll read a little bit more because there's a couple extra choruses. The story of this song says, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. There's a refrain, it is well with my soul, it is well, it is well with my soul. The next uh, chorus, though Satan should buffet, or verse, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control. That Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, or oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh, my soul. Now this one won't sound familiar to you. For me, be it Christ, be it Christ hence to live, if Jordan above me shall roll, no pang shall be mine, for in death as in life thou wilt whisper thy peace to my soul. I guess I should pull that up here, huh? But, Lord, tis for thee, for thy coming we wait. The sky, not the grave, is our goal. O the trump of the angel, O the voice of the Lord. Blessed hope, blessed rest of my soul. And, Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so it is well. With my soul. There's some powerful lines, there's some powerful things in this song that, without the context or understanding uh, of the, the, the gentleman who wrote it, it's hard for us to truly embrace what's being said. Now, I'm going to tell you a little bit of a history lesson. So, this song, I'm going to start back in the 1300s. A lot of people start in the 1800s, but I'm going to start back in the 1300s. There was a lady, her name was, what she's known as, was Jillian of Julian of Norwich. And what she was, was what they called an anchoress, which what is that? To me, it sounds like in reading, like a monk, but a woman. And so what happened in her life was she lived in England in the 1300s, in the Black Plague and all that stuff that had gone through, um, and she almost died. And when she almost died, she decided to set her life apart for God. And so what they had was like a room on the church, off the church, and she completely separated herself from society in order to focus on God. And so she had this room on the side of the church, and all she would do was spend time studying. People would literally, like she had a window to the outside world where people would bring her food, and then she could walk into the sanctuary. But that's what she did. And in this time frame, she wrote a book, which actually I purchased this week because I want to read it. Uh, it was called Divine Revelations of God's Love was the name of a book. And in this book, she wrote a phrase that became uh, prominent in the early church. Now, we're going to go to the 1800s. And, and that phrase, um, and I'm going to read more than just what's up there, says what she wrote in that book, Revelations of Divine Love, sorry. Um, it is true that sin 
is cause of all this suffering, but all shall be well, and all shall be well. And the manner of all things shall be well. These words were said very tenderly, tenderly indicating no kind of blame. These words were words that, that kind of resonated in, in, in a man in the 1800s. Now, we're going to go fast forward to the 1800s. His name was Horatio Spafford. And his story, if my notes are in order. He was born in 1828. And his life really was good. He got married to a woman. Her name was Anna. He was a lawyer in Chicago, uh, kind of at the head of his game. He was doing well on investments. He was doing well with what he did. He was a leader in his home. He was a leader in his church. He was one of the Presbyterian leaders of their church. He was friends with a man named D.L. Moody, who was a, who was a world-renowned evangelist at the time. He would travel with him and go with him places. His life was good. He had four kids. Everything was great. Then... In 1871, things began to change. He's here in Chicago, and he's diversified his portfolio. He's making lots of money as a lawyer or whatever he does. And so what he's decided to do was invest in real estate. And he bought a bunch of real estate in Chicago. In 1871, there was this thing called the Great Fire of Chicago that destroyed immediately most of his investments. He had some money left. But 1873, economy changed, and he took another hit economically. This is the position of his life. So in 1873, his friend D.L. Moody is supposed to be preaching in England, and he's been dealing with a lot. So now it can't be too bad because I'm not sure what it costs to send your family on a boat across the ocean to England, but that's what he decides to do. He's going to send his family on a boat over to England. They're going to have a vacation. They're going to listen to D.L. Moody preach. Uh, be with him in his season. And so, but he's got some business to take care of. So he puts them on a ship and they, they head to England, 1873. While they're traveling on their boat, there's an iron sailing vessel that runs into the side of their ship and causes their, their boat, his, his family's boat, to sink. Uh, it says historically 226 people perished. As this boat sank. Now remember, this was not today. This was in 1870s. So there wasn't a cell phone for his wife to send him a message. So in the course of the wreck, his children all perished. His wife survived. And he gets to, or she gets to England and, and she sends to him a telegram. Can you imagine? I'm sure he heard about this boat wreck before he got this message. And I'm sure he heard the tragedy of this boat wreck before he got this message. I mean, his life now is in shambles. I don't know if you can read this. Chicago, saved alone, what shall I do? Mrs. Goodwin, children, Willie, I can't read that one, lost. Go with Lord O until answers reply. Can you imagine the weight of this paper when he received this? Horatio Spafford, he's just dealt with economic failure. He's dealt with issues. Now he's dealing with the reality of his wife being in England. She's across the pond now. <laughs> he's probably in Chicago. I think it says Chicago on there. And so he's made a decision that he's going to go join his wife in England. So guess what he does? 
He hops on a boat. And he begins to travel to England. And somewhere in the, in the ocean, the captain calls to him and says, come here. And he, and he looks at Horatio Spafford and he says to him, this is the story that's told. If you look out right here, this is the spot. This is where your children perished. And I mentioned that phrase from Jillian of Norwich because it says in this moment he penned these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way. When sorrows like sea billows roll. I'm telling you what. When he penned those words, those were some big sorrows. Those were some incredible seas. It says initially he wanted to call this song, It Is Well. He wanted to name it the Ville du Havre, which was the name of the boat in which his children perished. The boat in which my children perished. It is well with my soul. We see the reality of that phrase that all is well, all shall be well, all is well, is reigning in his heart in these moments. Yes, he's dealing with stuff. Yes, he's dealing with circumstance. Yes, he's dealing with tragedy beyond my comprehension. But, he says, it is well. It is well with my soul. There's a scripture, there's a story in scripture, kind of there's a phrase in that that said, though Satan should buffet. Now buffet's a word that I just wanted to bring a definition to because sometimes when we think of buffet, we think of dining, right? If you're from Cincinnati, Ohio, you think of Jimmy. Um, but he, in this context, I looked up the definition. It's a verb, especially wind or waves strike repeatedly or over a long period. Though Satan should strike repeatedly. And, and, and when you read those verses, it's hard not to go to a book in the Old Testament. There's a book in the Old Testament about a man named Job. The scripture describes him as in the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the peoples of the earth. Horatio Spafford in 1970, right? Or 1960, sorry, everything was well. This is a man, the book of Job is really intriguing when you read it because you see um, two sides of the story. You see the heavenly side and you see the earthly side. So there's these interactions with Job here on earth and then you see these interactions with God and Satan and angels in heaven. It's an interesting picture, but what do we see in this scripture is Job, was his life was good. He was the greatest man among all the peoples of the earth or the east. I'd like to be known that way, huh? We can say things are going well. 
And so there's this weird or interesting or peculiar, I think, conversation that we begin to see between Job, or between God and Satan that's taking place in the heavens. God says, hey, have you considered Job? Satan's looking for someone righteous. Have you considered my servant Job? And, and, and so what we see is Satan says, yeah, but he's lived a, a sheltered life. It's easy to be righteous. It's easy to be good when all is well. When everything is great. And so he, he sets out to try or to bring trials to buffet, right? Is really what Satan does with Job. So in Job, Job gets four messages, one after the other after the other. I mean, it's like they're not even done with the previous message when the next messenger's showing up. The first message comes. All the oxen and donkeys were stolen by the Sabians, and all of the servants there were killed. While they're still giving him that message, another messenger shows up. It says those sheep and servants, they were destroyed by a fire from God. So remember how he was described. Let's go back here. Let's look at this again. I want to highlight this. He, owned se- he had seven sons, three daughters, owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, a large number of ser- servants. His, his greatness was kind of defined by what he had, right? I mean, that seems to be the implication of these words on earth. In heaven, God's bringing a different greatness. He's revealing a different greatness. So we move forward. The auction, the sheep, the Chaldeans come, and he gets another messenger while this guy's saying there was a fire that came down, and it said the Chaldeans stole all the camels and killed all the servants. And the last message that comes as they're still telling this story was all your kids were together in a house. They were having a feast. That's what they like to do together. If you read it, um, they, were, they were enjoying one another's company. There was a great wind that came up, and just like the big bad wolf, the house came down and killed all your kids. In the matter of moments, it seems like in Scripture, Job's greatness is ripped from him. In a matter of moments, it seems like in Scripture, what Job has is taken from him. His donkeys, his camels, his sheep, his oxen, his kids are removed from him. And so then all of a sudden we've got this position. Earth. Job's dealing with the trials, the tragedies. In the heavens, we see Satan and, and, and God talking. And, and Job has dealt well with this initial set of messages. He still loves God. He still fears the Lord. And Satan comes to God, and basically his, his story now is, well, that's easy. It's easy now for Job because he doesn't hurt. I mean, yeah, he lost some stuff and he lost some kids, but it's not really inward it's all outward so if he was sick if he was in pain i guarantee he would reject you this is a little bit of my chosen version even though the chosen is in the new testament he would he would he would he would reject you god says okay let's see so scripture says that from the soles of his feet to the top of his head job was covered in painful boils i mean It's intriguing to me the relief that Job finds. How does Job find a relief? He sits in the ashes. We talked about ashes. (laughs) That was the place of mourning. 
And he finds a piece of broken pottery and he begins to scrape himself in the midst of, uh, uh, of, his, of his pain, of his issues. That's where he's finding relief. And then in that moment, guess what happens? We see there's a lot that happens in the next several chapters. He's got some friends and he's got a wife and they say all kinds of things to him. They're trying to convince him to, to reject God. They're trying to convince him to deny God. That's the tactic. That's what the enemy wants. But look at Job chapter 13. In the midst of the voices, keep silent and let me speak. Then let come to me what may. Why do I put myself in jeopardy and take my life in my hands? Though he may slay me, yet I will hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. See, Job said in the midst of all that he lost, in the midst of all that was, in the midst of the season in which he was endured, he started singing, it is well with my soul. He's saying to those that are speaking, to the voices that are around him, I have to put my hope in him. He's what I know. That's who he is. He's who I trust. He's who I serve. So even though I've lost everything, even though I'm in pain and probably scarred now, because I got a guess. Anybody here have chicken pox scars still? Yeah, I got a few. Because I was looking for some broken pottery. You know what I'm saying? I'm guessing the man had scars. I'm guessing he had scars on the inside and on the outside. But in the midst of all of that, he cried out to God and he said, My hope is in him. Horatio Spafford, on on the dock or the, the deck of a boat, he's writing, It is well with my soul. It's It's profound. People are going to look at you and say you're crazy. When you've lost everything in a fire, when you've lost everything in the stock market, when your family has been stripped away from you, and you look at them and you say, but it's well. I'm guessing he still had tears in his eyes when he said it is well. I'm guessing there was still pain in his body when he's saying it is well. I'm guessing there's still agony in his heart when he's singing it is well. But sometimes we have to declare the truths of God. Sometimes we have to stand upon the promises of God, even in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our circumstance. That's the boat in which we can be upon. It's it's well. It's well with my soul. There's a story in the book of Lamentations. Lamentations is a book in the Old Testament. It was written by Jeremiah. He was a prophet. He was known as the weeping prophet because really in the world's eyes he was a failure. He talked a lot and no one listened. He warned, he encouraged, he he prophesied, and people didn't listen to him. Look at the way he describes himself in Lamentations chapter 1 verse 16. This is why I weep and my eyes overflow with tears. No one's near to comfort me. No one to restore my spirit. My children are destitute because the enemy has prevailed. Lamentations is written in a place of desperation to lament, right? That's what it's about. He's he's concerned with, he's seeing things. He's dealing with the issue of what many would say was a failed life. 
And he's crying out. He writes, I think, five laments in this book. And smack dab in the middle of his laments, he wrote this verse, or these verses. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet, someone might need to underline that word, yet. I'm guessing Horatio Spafford, when he's on that boat, wondering what his wife's going to look like, wondering how he's going to say, what do you say to your wife in that moment when you've been separated? He put her on the boat, and he's going to see his wife for the first time, and he wasn't there to save his kids. He wasn't there to help her. I'm sure he was a little bit downcast in his soul, but he had to find a yet. The prophet, yet I call this to mind, and therefore I have. He said, I find hope because of the Lord's great love. We're not consumed. His compassions, they never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. I mean, I just see the prophet. I see what he's saying. Jeremiah, as he's writing these words, is he's struggling with the reality, with the sorrow, with the tears, with the frustration, with the discouragement, with the fact that he's not going to get an article in the Pentecostal Evangel because he hasn't done enough. He hasn't accomplished enough. And he's struggling in himself. He's downcast. He's discouraged. But he comes to a yet. Yet. I need to remember. And it's hard to remember in the midst of the sorrows. It's hard to recall in the midst of the brokenness. In the midst of the words. In the midst of the stories. In the midst of the stories that you're writing or that others are writing. Yet I call to mind. of the Lord's great love. And I just see Horatio Spafford saying that, right? As he's writing that song. Because of the Lord's great love, I'm not consumed. God still loves me. His compassions, they don't fail. Man, this world failed. Why? His compassions never failed. They're new every morning. My God is faithful. I say to myself, I can't get through this on my own. I need God. He's my portion. I'll wait until He comes to me. I'll wait until He fills me. I'll wait until He speaks to me. I'll wait until his spirit is the spirit of God who brings comfort, who brings love, who brings understanding. Because my God's good. You're crazy. 
You're crazy, Jeremiah. You're crazy, Job. You're crazy, Horatio. Your God is not good. That's what the world tells us. That's the arguments that sometimes we tell ourselves. But I call to mind God's love. Call to mind the promise of my hope in Jesus Christ. I call to mind the reality that in this world I may have troubles, but I have a God who promises. He promised in the Old Testament. He promises in, he promises in the New Testament. He will never leave me. He will never forsake me. It doesn't matter what I'm experiencing. It doesn't matter what I'm going through. It doesn't matter what the world has to offer. It doesn't matter who's saying what. It doesn't matter how crazy my story sounds. My God will not leave me. My God has never forsaken me. Actually, he's going to come to me in the midst of this moment. He's going to fill my cup. He's going to be my portion. Man, it doesn't make sense. But it's well. It's well in my soul. Going back to my yet, yet I call this to mind. I think that's a discipline we have to have. You know what I see my kids do? You know what's funny with my kids? If mom and dad punish our kids, if we say, go to your room, do you know what the words start to become? Mom and dad don't love me. Why do we associate discipline with love or the lack thereof? You see, there's a truth that overrides the reality that they've derived in their mind. Their mind is they're being punished. They're being punished unjustly or unfairly, even though they deserve it. Right, Levi? But because their mind is so consumed with the way they feel and with what they're experiencing, they don't know the truth that really is, that their mom and dad absolutely love them. And that love has never changed. That love is not going anywhere. Isn't that what we do with God? I've been there. This isn't what I thought I would be doing or where I thought I would be. And I just failed miserably. And God's like, I haven't changed. I loved you when it was well, and I love you when it's not well. I was near to you when you were on the mountaintop, and I'm carrying you when you're in the valley. And I just have to recognize my yet, and I call this to mind. This is who my God is. Foaming waves. My God loves me. Lying voices. My God loves me. Complete failure. My God loves me. Pain, sickness, problems. My God loves me. Deuteronomy 7. 
It says, know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He's the faithful God. This is what I need to bring to mind. The Lord my God is God. He's the Alpha and Omega, the first and last. He's the one who put all this into motion. Know therefore the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations. Guess what? We're in that thousand. I didn't call you a thousand, Rowene. We're in that. Keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those that love him and keep his commandments. You guys can come up. You're going to play it as well, just in case you're wondering. I don't usually tell them what to play this morning. I think that's appropriate. I got two more portions of scripture that I want to read. One's in the book of Philippians and one's in the book of First Peter. Paul says to the church in Philippi, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstance. You know, I know what it's to be in need and I know what it's to have plenty. I've learned the circumstance of the secret, sorry, of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. You know, verse 13, we see this verse on our football players, they wear this, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we think it's got to do with like performing well in sports. We think it's got to do with, with what they're accomplishing. What Paul is saying, I can do all things. That means being content in all things because God is the one who gives me strength. That's his yet. You know, I've learned that I have to be content in what I have and what I don't have. I've learned that I have to be content when things are going well and when things are going bad. I can do this. Why? Because I've got a God who gives me the strength to do this. There's a God who will give you strength to cry out, it is well in the midst of your sorrows. There's a God that will, that will allow you to cry out, it is well in the midst of the circumstance. When you're standing over the place of, uh, of devastation. Why? Because he gives you strength. First Peter 4. And then we're going to sing. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Now Peter isn't saying rejoice for the sufferings. Rejoice that you partner in the sufferings of Christ. Why? What were the sufferings of Christ for? Our sin. The sufferings of Christ were for our salvation. The sufferings of Christ were so that we could have hope in the midst of whatever we face, whatever fiery trial we have, so we can give joy because what do we do? We lift our eyes from what is and we look at what is to come. My yet, my mind. Sometimes I have to look at Him. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed for the spirit of glory and and of God rests on you. This morning, I want us to sing this chorus again, this song again. And this morning, I don't know where you are. You may be Horatio Spafford pre-Chicago Fire. That's okay. Life may be good. Wife loves you. Kids are growing. Bank account looks solid. 
I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance. There are others in this room you might say, my life's in shambles. I've dealt with loss after loss after loss. It almost seems as though I get one message and before that message is complete, another message is coming. How much more of this can I endure? How much more of this can I take? You may be dealing with pain. Pain in your heart. Pain in your body. Yet, this morning. Yet. Yet I consider this. We've got a God who loves us. Not only does He love us, but He's a faithful God. Yet, this morning, my God has not forgotten me. Yet, this morning, My God has a portion for me today. Yet, this morning, the the, the pain is real. The suffering is true. But my God is greater because I have hope in Jesus Christ that one day all this shall pass. A little bit of the rest of Horatio Spafford's story. I wasn't sure I was going to tell this. He comes back and he actually left the Presbyterian church. He had more kids, three more kids, a son and two daughters. His first son died of scarlet fever. He said he moved to Jerusalem because he just wanted to be there when Jesus came back. Like that's what he became consumed with. Probably to an unhealthy place, I'm just going to say that. But he became consumed with that Jesus is coming back. So I'm going to do whatever I can to expedite him coming back. Because that's all he could focus on. Was I just need to be where my hope is fulfilled. Father, we come to you this morning. You know us. You know our stories. You know our messages. You know the words that have been spoken to us and about us. You know the skies and you know the seas. Yet, you're faithful. And God, this morning as we sing this song, I pray it becomes a prayer or a declaration of our lives. That no matter where we are, we're going to be content in every circumstance. No matter what fiery trial that you've given us, you've given us the strength that we need to get through this. That we can say with confidence today, with assurance today, in the midst of the, 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 the winds, in the midst of the losses, it is well. God, I pray for the joy of being content. In Jesus' name.
We. Mm-hmm.
That's what we remind ourselves. It's well with my soul. I want to tell you this morning that if you want to visit with me, if you say, Pastor, that was a good song, but I still don't get the words. I still don't know how to say that. I still haven't understood fully how to come to that place. Please come see me sometime. There's always a pot of coffee there, and if it's not ready, I can pour a pot and have it. We'll sit down together. We'll talk through it. We'll, we'll have a conversation about Jesus Christ and how we have that assurance with him. Come see me sometime. If you, if you know Jesus Christ, if you've understood that, learn the value of, of getting to the place of being content, of recognizing his love. The Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you, grant you his peace. And may you know you're yet. It is well with your soul. Be blessed.